Welcome to the faculty reading of the round robin session. Um, all of our faculty are going to read. They'll each read for for ten to twelve minutes, um, uh, and I'll ask each of the readers when you're finished reading to to introduce very briefly um, the the next reader uh, on the circle. And you see uh, this 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 uh, this beautiful medallion of beautiful literary luminosity. <laughs> You'll observe that it's, it's not a traditional list, and this is because it's around Robin, and we have uh, over here a series of definitions of the round Robin, um, all of which really We've, we've experienced as a, as, a, as a company this week a sequence uh, or series, a tournament or game in which all of the entrants uh, encounter each other at least once. A, uh, a letter, let's say, are, are the messages and the bottles that we throw to the world that we circulate from person to person, group to group. And finally, um, and this is where the circle comes from, uh, a nautical definition in, 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 in nautical lore the definition of uh, a round robin is a description of a signature, a form of petition um, where the signatories, if that's a word um, uh, uh, sign not in a list but in a circle and the reason they signed this way is because in, in, in mutinies um, when crews took over ships and uh, dispatched captains um, they had to make this decision collectively uh, and, and uh, the decision, the, position, the petition was presented to the captain and the signatures could not be in a list because uh, mutiny was a hanging offense and the first person on the list would be charged with the crime. So it could not be, um, there could be no order and that's where the circle comes from. So uh, I don't know who's reading first. Uh, the crew has decided this among themselves. So uh, I will let them. I will let the. I'll let them take it over and let the mutiny begin. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'm Robin Hemley. Um, I uh, hopefully I won't hang for this. Uh, what? Okay. Okay. Take that off. So, um, actually, though, yeah, join. It's not on. Okay. Okay. So, um, I'm going to have to use a little technology here. Um, okay. So, my uh, what I'm going to read. I've been uh, teaching travel writing. Uh, so this week, and I'm going to read you a travel essay that takes place in Iowa, um, where um, basically uh, my uh, wife uh, grew up in the Philippines and had a whole different musical education from me. And she grew up at a time where um, the band Air Supply was big, and uh, I grew up hating the band Air Supply, and she loved the band Air Supply. So there was an opportunity um, for her to go see the band, their supplier, what remnants of it there are, um, uh, in, at a place called the Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque, Iowa. So uh, in order to prove my love for her, I decided, well, I'll go with her. Um, how many of you have heard of their supply? How many of you listen to their music? How many like their music? Oh, great. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, but for those of you who don't know their music, um, I thought I'd play just a bit of it and also give you a sense of what they used to look like. Um, so, uh, I guess I just press this. Oh, did I just... What? No, just press the... We'll just... I'm aware that 
Diamond Joe Casino. This was in the uh, Paris Review um, uh, website. It's called Ululating to Air Supply. She of the karaoke tribe from the archipelago of the interminable love song where Karen Carpenter never goes out of style has, never, has not asked me to prove my love, but when she says she wants to go with her Filipina emigre friends to Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque, Iowa, to see Air Supply live in concert, I seize this as an opportunity after 12 years of marriage akin to a renewal of vows and as close to sacrificing my life for her as I'm going to get. It's a card I will hold in reserve. Yes, I cheated on you with your best friend, but don't forget, I went to see Air Supply live with you at Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque. Hard work, marriage. <coughs> you remember Air Supply and what they sang. Of course you do. That song. And the one that sounded just like it. And that other one, too. <laughs> yeah, those. If I seem as enthusiastic about the concert as a zombie at a baby shower, then that's twice as enthusiastic as I mean to seem. I embarrass easily. I'm overly self-conscious, and when someone does something really stupid around me, such as wearing a fake deer head to get attention, as I saw recently on a commuter flight in Cedar Rapids, I feel that it's me wearing that deer head. The same holds true at an air supply concert. I feel as though it's me belting out stale lyrics along with the audience. But it's not me. It's Margie. She is a loyal soul who loves without apology or embarrassment. I did not grow up listening to Air Supply, and so I don't see what she sees performing on stage. I see a man bedecked with a rhombus of white hair and a tag sail Sergeant Pepper jacket, and his taller partner, Russell, likewise white-haired, with a microphone wrapped from ear to mouth, almost retro, it's so conspicuous. The room, including the stage and bar, is only about half the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Does Russell need a microphone at all? It's great to be back in your lovely state, Russell tells the crowd of 150 at most. Margie and I sit in folding chairs near the front of the stage. Everyone says that, don't they? And it's true that it feels like a line, but he has to say it, I guess. It's part of the package though he conspicuously left off the name of the state it's so great to be back in. Is he thinking Idaho? No, Ohio? I had it a second ago. Guitar strung around his neck, he tries to make a connection with the chattering crowd. Do you ever feel you need to go someplace alone? He asks. I need that. In my house, I have places that no one knows about, not even me. A sanctuary. He laughs and turns to the band of four young men behind him who seem awake enough to give him courtesy laughs in return. I do like his sense of irony. He has my respect for that. Maybe he couldn't care less about this quadrillionth gig of his, but he has to pretend he cares while dropping hints that he's not going to take himself too seriously anymore. The other one, Graham, keeps signaling for more applause, talks about this being the kickoff of the world tour. Can you rock it for me, he asks. The people beside Margie can't rock it for him or anyone. 
double-wide Iowans, nodding slightly as though sitting on the tarmac waiting for their plane to be de-iced, and Margie asked to change places with me. Graham has noticed three empty seats in the front row. Empty seats bother him, and he wants them filled immediately. Did they leave? Were they never filled? Margie's Filipina friends closer to the stage than she dashed to fill them. I don't believe we fall in love, Russell says as smoke billows. I believe love falls into us. Write that down, guys. (laughs) Is he Shakespeare, someone near me asks? The audience is not full of dewy teens. They've been through it all, and so they joke about how incredibly large that woman is, the one who's every woman in the world to me. (laughs) They want to drink a beer, maybe play the slots. It's an alliance between half the audience and Big Russell the Ironist. The other half of the audience, which includes Margie and her Filipina friends, are in alliance with Graham. They believe that love has fallen into them, that love will lift them up on stage. Graham and Russell cycle through their hits, which, now that they're singing them, are familiar even to me. You are my lady, lost in love. And then Russell sings a new composition called Everywhere, the basic idea of which seems to be that someone, you, is everywhere. Everywhere the singer goes, everywhere the singer imagines, in his heart and most likely in his soul, although his soul isn't explicitly mentioned in the lyrics. He confides in the way that someone confides in a bunch of people one doesn't know that he likes to sit on the porch and look at the mountains, wait for something to happen. If something doesn't happen, he drinks a bottle of wine. Then something happens. (laughs) Next song, he drops into the audience like a paratrooper with a shattered knee. He's everywhere, a wag behind me says. But he's singing one of his big hits. I know he is, though I have no idea what it's called. It's that big one, that big hit, like the other ones. Not like Everywhere, which has as much chance of becoming a hit now as The Farmer in the Dell. But for him, his career marches on. There's nothing stopping him, not even advancing age. I asked Margie the name of the song. She's waving to him. She's been waving to him the entire concert. You're every woman in the world to me, she rattles off. Again, I ask? No, she says, acknowledging her mistake, but also that I'm a pest by waving her hand at me, not in the same way she waves it at Big Russell. It's Here I Am, which sounds kind of like every other song in the world to me. Oh, my, Graham is wading into the audience, too, and has kissed a woman full on the lips. Get out the nitro tablets. He leads the audience in an a cappella version of Here I Am. The concert is going karaoke. Someone ululates. Do people ululate at air supply concerts? The lighters come out, both real and virtual. In the afterglow of the concert, Margie shyly asks if I'd mind waiting while she stands in line for an air supply t-shirt. The shirt costs $45. But on the bright side, you get a CD of their new music, which presumably includes everywhere and everything, and maybe even everybody, and you are my lost in love lady slash woman, and here I am to me. Sure, I say, go ahead, I'll play the slots. And I say it without any sense of irony or cynicism. I mean, she is my lady. While she's standing in line for the ephemera so meaningful to her to have it signed, to look into their eyes and see a connection, I put $5 in one of the penny slots in the casino, twice the size of the performance area, and I start to hum all out of love, because there's a part of my brain that, despite all the other parts, is sentimental and earnest and believes that all you have to do is believe. It's not love that falls into me, but money from this slot machine. Within minutes, I've won nearly $300, more than enough money to pay myself for the tickets, for dinner, for the gas, for her exhaustion t-shirt. When Margie comes by to collect me, I belt out a bar of one of Air Supply's famous songs, hoping she believes it's true. Thanks. So, next we have uh, Sarah, or uh, Sabrina, I'm sorry, Sabrina, or Marks. Uh, so, Sabrina, uh, we come up, please. Thank you. Hi. Can I just clip this on? I could leave this. 
Good. Can you hear me? Yes. Working? Okay. Um, so I'm going to read I th what is a short story, I think, but there are little poems hiding inside it. So I'll start with an apology for um, slipping out of my genre, my, my poetry, my great love. Um, but I think there are little poems hiding inside the story. It's called Wild Milk. On the first day of Live Oak Daycare, all the children are given shovels and a small bag of dirt. We encourage the children, even the babies, especially the babies, to work hard imaginatively. Miss Birdie, my son's teacher, winks. She sits my baby boy in the middle of the floor with his shovel and dirt. He is not even a year old. I look around. The babies are happy. I have never seen such happy babies chewing on their shovels, spreading around their dirt. Miss Birdie gives me a hug. I wave goodbye to my boy, but he doesn't see me. Go, go, says Miss Birdie. He's in good hands. She shows me her hands. They remind me, for some reason, of my hands. Three hours later, I come to pick up my boy. He is wearing a bright orange poncho that does not belong to him. He crawls towards me like a searchlight. Your child, says Miss Birdie, is a phenomenon. I blush. Oh, thank you. We too think he is very special, I say. I want to ask about the poncho, but Miss Birdie goes on. I mean, your child is a menomena, says Miss Birdie. What I, what I mean to say is that your child is a real man. Miss Birdie softly pinches her tongue and pulls out a long white hair. Oh, that's better, she says. I mean a ma. She makes little tiny spits. I mean a no one. Your child, says Miss Birdie, is a real no one. No, no, that's not it either. Miss Birdie smooths her stiff cotton skirt. It's pink with tiny red cherries on it. What I mean to say most of all, says Miss Birdie, is that I love not being dead. Me too, I say. Oh, good, says Miss Birdie. Here's his bottle. He drank all his milk and then cried and cried and cried for more. In the hallway, I pass a mother covered in daughters. I count approximately five. I hold up my bundled son like a form of identification, like he will provide me safe passage across the border. No daughters, she asks. No, I say, no daughters. How come, she asks. She seems to be blaming me unfairly. By the time they arrived, I explain, the daughters had turned. Rotten, she asks. Not exactly rotten, but gigantic. I hand her my boy so I can spread my arms wide to show her how big I take my boy back. Gigantic, I repeat, and mealy. I sent the whole bin back, the whole bin of daughters back. The brave thing would have been to keep them, I know, but they seem so impossible to name. The mother nods. She still seems to disapprove, but before I can be certain, her daughters lift her up humbly and carry her away. The strange thing about being a mother is how often I'm interrupted, like something is happening and then something else is happening. It is difficult to get a good grasp on things. The next day, Miss Birdie is peeling vegetables. The babies are watching, transfixed. I have come early to pick up my boy, but I don't see my boy. Miss Birdie points to a child the color of chicken broth. Yours, she says, she asks. Definitely not mine, I say. She points to another and another as if I lost my ticket for the coat check. I don't see my boy. It is becoming difficult to breathe and I am suddenly freezing cold. The floor opens up beneath me and just as I begin to fall through, my boy crawls out from underneath a bassinet. In his fist is a tiny book. On the cover 
is a picture of a plain brown mouse. He holds it up. Mouse, he says. This is his first real word. My mouse, he says. I am amazed. I am relieved. His pronunciation is perfect. I want to pick him up, reward him with kisses, hold him and never let him go, but Miss Birdie stops me. No, no, she says. She softly wags a finger at my boy. That's not your mouse. That's no one's mouse. Her voice slows. That mouse, Miss Birdie coughs. That mouse, she says, is alone in this world and barely... Miss Birdie stops. What was that, she asks. What was what, I say. That sound, says Miss Birdie. I don't know, I say. What did it sound like? It was a sound that sounded like a sound, says Miss Birdie, like a sound a sound would make. Never mind, where was I? You are with the mouse. Oh, the mouse, do you know him? No, I say, unless you mean, neither do I, says Miss Birdie, and this is my point. That mouse, Miss Birdie is now looking at my boy, that mouse is alone in this world, and barely, Miss Birdie sucks in one long, beautiful breath. Exists, says Miss Birdie triumphantly. That mouse is not unlike you. She is still looking at my boy. When I call out for that mouse in the dark, does the mouse come? No, the mouse does not. Do you? So far, not even once. My baby puts his whole hand in Miss Birdie's mouth and leaves it there for what seems like days. On Monday, Miss Birdie's bright pink blouse is fluttering with excitement. Your boy wrote his name today all by himself. She hands me a piece of construction paper. Someone, not my baby, has written on it shreds. I hand the paper back. That is not his name. Oh, says Miss Brady. She looks at the paper and her face crumples. I am sorry, says Miss Brady. I don't know how this happened. I don't know how anything happens, I say. We hold hands. I'm so lonely, says Miss Brady. I'm so lonely too, I say. I thought you were my hiding place, says Miss Birdie. I picture her skull. I thought you were mine, I say. Miss Birdie ties a yellow scarf around her head. Stop picturing my skull, says Miss Birdie. <laughs> she is clearly upset. Her lips are cracked and begin to bleed a little. She looks at the construction paper and traces each letter with her thumb. If this isn't his name, then whose name is it? She sorts through the other babies. She pats me down as if searching for something. She touches me on the thigh. She feels like she's about to snow. The next day, there's a message from Miss Birdie. We cannot give your boy his bottle. The milk you left was wild. Please bring better milk. I rush to Live Oak. I have no better milk. This is the only milk I have. I point to each breast. Miss Birdie is holding my baby. He is shivering and hungry. Miss Birdie is snowing, hard. I try to walk towards her, but there is a great wind, and I can barely see through the big white flakes. This is the only milk I have. I am calling to Miss Birdie and my boy through the snowstorm. My arms are outstretched. Come to Mama, I cry. I say my baby's name. It sounds smaller and flatter than I ever imagined it. I can't get to him. Miss Birdie is a blizzard that could last all winter. I am sorry, I am shouting. Miss Birdie has my baby and she is snowing. It is all my fault. I should never have left him. I am sorry, I am sorry, I am sorry. I am punching at the snow. I am fighting against nature when I know I have no choice but to wait until spring. The mother covered in daughters kneels beside me. This time I count approximately 15. Climb on, she says. I am so sorry, I say. It is the only milk I have. Of course it is, she says. 
Is there room, I ask? Around my neck, she says. I climb around it loosely. The mother covered in daughters is warm, and I am so tired. Go to sleep, says the mother. I will wake you up when it's time to go. But the mother never does wake me up, which is how you know this story is true. is the magnificent Bo O'Reilly. in my band, you know, and uh, I have this great band at home, and they really, they can hear the cane, so they, they know how to keep with me. So I'm going to read this, just this little one. I made this one the first time I did one of these teacher reading things here. I got up and improvised this one, and then I did it for a while on stage before I wrote it down, so I thought I would do it today, because that would be nice. My acupuncturist has recently given up the needle in favor of the machine. And I've been going to my acupuncturist for 30 years now, and I really trust her. And lately I've had these pains in my knees because of the knee replacements. So I went and I told her about the knees, and she said, I think we'll use the machine. (laughs) Now, I don't know much about the machine, I know it was invented over a hundred years ago and it used to be illegal in the United States. It was considered the result of some rogue science. You could find it only in Europe, but now it's legal here and the machine attaches you to the center of the earth and it uses some electrical impulses and some sound waves and a lot of water. So I go in and she lays me down on the table and she covers my body with these wet towels And then she turns on the machines. She turns off the light and she goes. And I'm wide awake, I'm very alert. There's this pulse that's going up and down my body and I'm lying there in the dark and then the door opens and this small woman comes in. 
and she's dressed all in black. She seems to have like a black veil over her face. And she has a broom. And she's nodding, and she's smiling benignly at me, and she sweeps right up to where I'm lying. And then she sweeps away into the corner, and I see her a little more clearly, and I realize it's Mother Teresa. Mm. Now, I don't have a thing about Mother Teresa. I never thought about her much before, and I haven't really thought about her much since this, but I definitely know that it's Mother Teresa, and she's nodding, and and she's working, and cleaning, and smiling, and she finishes, she goes, and my acupuncturist comes back, and she says, now, did anything happen? And I say, yeah, I saw Mother Teresa. And she says, what you saw was the face of God. Now, next week... So I was thinking about hallucination and how I never really have hallucinated that much. When I used to take a lot of LSD, I would take the pill and then I would immediately start trying to keep track of what was real and what was. And it made me very nervous to not know. I wanted to know. And because of that, I just never hallucinated. And a few years ago, I was working on this production of Endgame by Samuel Beckett. And it was the opening night and I was terrified because maybe we hadn't rehearsed the play enough, and maybe we spent too much time on the pauses, or maybe the actor playing him, me, just didn't learn the lines very well. I was really terrified. I didn't know the lines to Endgame by Samuel Beckett, and there was a lot of reason to suspect that this was true, because in the dress rehearsal the night before, I lost most of the lines. Whole chunks of the play just disappeared. Now, if you know the play, Ham starts the play sitting in a chair, and he is covered with this this white sheet, and there's these dark glasses on him because he's blind, and he's got this red blood-stained handkerchief over his face. And I was already ensconced in the chair. I had the sheet and the blood-stained handkerchief and the black sunglasses, and I was sitting in there, and I was really frightened, like I was shaking with fear. I started to say the serenity prayer over and over and over again, but without much hope, just too fast, kind of distracted, but serenity, serenity, serenity. And then right in front of me, right between the sheet and the blood-stained handkerchief, appeared the face of Jesus. Now, I don't have a thing about Jesus, never thought about Jesus much before this, and I haven't thought about Jesus since. But it was definitely Jesus. I recognized him because I'd seen pictures of him in the third or the fourth grade. And he looked just like that. Now he was smiling benignly with the wavy hair, and he looked very young, and Jesus just nodding and smiling at me. That was nice. (laughs) And then he shifted into Samuel Beckett. And Beckett was staring at me with those hard, cold eyes of his, like hard-boiled eggs, just staring at me. And Beckett said, just say the lines, (laughs) one after the other. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I started to laugh. And the actor playing Clove, he was waiting to go on, and the audience was coming in, the lights were going down. He said, it's time, it's time. I'm laughing away under the sheet. And he says, it's time, we've got to go out there. So he rolls the chair out, and he lifts off the sheet, and the play begins, and I just said the lines, one at a time. Thank you. And now I believe that our friend Elizabeth McCracken is coming up. So, I'm also going out of genre. I'm reading a little essay. I'm having such a good time this week. Um, An essay called, it's got nothing to do with having a good time, Um, The Container and the Thing Contained. Coins that have been sitting in an open container send up a plume of dust when you dump them out, a little numismatic wraith. What's it made of? Plaster, dander, dead skin cells, the soul of the house and household. What does it weigh? 
impossible to measure. The container I'm thinking of was a plastic jar shaped like a fishbowl, round with a narrow opening at the top, which I found on a high bookshelf at my parents' house in the days after my father's death. It was only one of many coin receptacles in the house. Elsewhere were the giveaway coffee mugs, the heirloom Tupperware heaving with pennies, but it had been left upstairs where neither of my parents had been in a while. It might have once held pretzels. I picked it up. Change, when it collects, is heavy, and after someone dies, it's nice to bear a weight you can know you can get rid of. First, though, I drove my parents' station wagon to Magnize, the neighborhood funeral parlor, where my brother, 40 years before, had attended Cub Scout meetings in the visitation room. We were having my father cremated, his immensity reduced to pocket change. They do it right in Newton Cemetery, Mr. Magna, the old funeral director, told me in his office. His wife had been the Cub Scout leader. He'd assessed me correctly, one of those morbidly curious bereaved. They just installed a new facility for the obese. My father might need that, I said. Big boy, was he, said Mr. Magni, who had not yet met my father's body. Six foot three and probably 300 pounds, I said. Oh, he's fine, said Mr. Magni. I mean for the 500, 600 pound people. No, 300, that's nothing. Your father's small. Well, I said, good. Well, how could that be? My father was the great repository. He received and contained deep-fried oysters, biographies of Samuel Morse, crab cakes, train schedules, snifters of Drambui, encyclopedia entries, and how they varied from edition to edition. His motto, when you paused to decide whether to order a glass or a bottle of wine in a restaurant, was, prudence favors the bottle. For my father, prudence always favored more. Even his blue eyes were gigantic, big as Kennedy half dollars, even his white goatee was halfway down his chest. He remembered everything. It gave him pleasure. He was shy, but if he loved you doing a meal, he'd lecture on any one of the subjects he was an expert at. The meal he spilled on his shirt front, but he never misplaced a fact, never, ever lost his train of thought. Speaking, as we were, of Millard Fillmore's second wife, he might say, though only he had spoken of her, and only glancingly, and an hour and a half before. Good as he was with facts, he was lousy with things. Collected is the wrong word. He attracted objects, loved them, broke them. Coronation mugs by the dozens, cameras by the hundreds, books by the literal thousands. All these figures are literal. He didn't collect coins exactly, though he didn't do anything to stop them from collecting. He broke a bill every time he ever bought anything with cash. Counting, he thought was a waste of time. <clears throat> now then, old Mr. Magni said, urns, is mom going to display? The package they come in from the crematorium isn't bad. It's a box wrapped in parchment. Here, he said, and he went to a closet and pulled out just such a box wrapped in lilac paper. Let's see, he said, reading the label on the side. Helen Doherty. He set the box in my hands. To give you an idea, he said. I weighed it. An idea of what? Helen Doherty reduced, had an unsettling heft, like fruitcake. <laughs> Just then, Mrs. Magni, the former Cub Scout leader, walked into the office. Oh, she said in a pleasant voice. Is that Dad? <laughs> this is Mrs. Doherty, I said. And then, to explain myself, we've only just been introduced. Back in my father's car, I noticed months of fallen coins on the floor and the cup holders. I scooped them up and added them to the plastic jug from the house. I meant to be thorough. I'm not an orderly person, but I went to library school, which means I like to put things in order when I can. Sorting the coins by denomination was only the most obvious arrangement. They could have been organized geographically, depending on country of origin or mint mark, or stacked by date or by condition, poor to mint, encrusted to mint. Some of those pennies looked as though they'd been in a shipwreck. I took them to the machine at the grocery store. The loose change of the dead. Impersonal because you'll never recognize your lost one's change once it has, unlike your lost one, gone back in circulation. But what's been in your palm, what's written in your pockets, surely knows your secrets.
felt, jingled, worried, taken for granted. All those pennies my father never counted out or passed along. At the goodwill, months hence, a shopper might wonder what large person had last owned this stained red cardigan. At the library book sale, who had so badly dog-eared this biography of Bismarck? But the coins would end up in somebody else's pocket, matter of fact, without provenance. In the end, my father's ashes took up two of those lilac-wrapped boxes. The grocery store coin counting machine had a perforated tray that sifted the grit from the coins, though I still had to hand-pick out the detritus, paper clips, toothpaste caps. Maybe that's just my family. Maybe in other families, there are only coins in the coin collection. How are people not careless? With change, I mean, flying away. I always break a bill, too. I dreamt then, I'm still dreaming of a kind of afterlife, a machine that would redeem not just the coins it recognized, but everything. Give us something for our fallen buttons, our safety pins, our boltless hex nuts. Don't spit that ruble coin out. A dime's a dime machine. Let's not be snobby about Canadian immigrants. The coins in the tub must have included my father's DNA, having shared the house with him so long. Mysterious feather, old campaign button, fingernail clipping, machine. I gave you these things because I thought you could put them to use. We saved them for you. And our next speaker is Michael Martone. Hi. Start time. I'm going to read uh, two little pieces. Uh, the first one is a contributor's note. Can you hear okay? Yeah. Uh, is a contributor's note. It's from a book called Michael Martone. I like books that have uh, titles of uh, just uh, people. Uh, Jane Eyre, David Copperfield, uh, Tom Sawyer, Michael Martone. Uh, and it's made up of contributor's notes. Um, and we're all writers here. You know what the contributor's note is at the end of the... You know, end of the magazine, there's a little thing. And uh, when they ask you to write a contributor's note, it's just very interesting. You immediately switch into third person, uh, and you have a sort of form and, and style. And so I started playing around with that. So I'd send these contributor's notes uh, out to magazines, and sometimes the editors would accept them. And uh, then I would ask the editor, could you please put the contributor's note in the contributor's note section of the magazine. So I have a lot of these published in magazines, but I'm not in the table of contents. Uh, I mean, I'm just only in the contributor's note section. And sometimes I'd send them to an editor, and the editor would say, no, no, I'm going to put it in the front of the book. Please send a contributor's note. So I'd send another contributor's note. He'd say, no, 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 send a real contributor's note. And I said, these are real contributor's notes. So um, I'm not very good, I tell my students, not very good uh, with titles, so they're all titled Contributor's Note. I have 40, 50, 60 of them. Contributor's Note. Michael Martone was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and grew up there, leaving at 17 to work as a roustabout in the last traveling circus to winter in the state. He had held many jobs since then, including night auditor at a resort hotel, stenographer for the National Labor Relations Board, and a clerk for a regional bookstore chain run by the associates of the Gambino crime family. For the last 20 years, Martone has been digging ditches. As a ditch digger, he has helped lay agricultural tiling, both the original fire clayed tile and the flexible PVC tubing in the farm fields of northern Indiana, Ohio, and southern Michigan. He worked on the national project that buried thousands of miles of fiber optic cable along active and abandoned right-of-ways of the North American railroads. He is often contracted to do the initial excavation and archaeological digs throughout the Midwest's extensive network of mounds built by archaic pre-Columbian civilizations, where he would roughly remove the initial unremarkable strata for the scholars who followed at the site with hand trowels and dental instruments. Often, when digging ditches, Martone would employ a poacher's spade made in the United Kingdom by the Bulldog Company and given to him by Nobel Prize-winning Irish poet Seamus Haney, who ordered it from the Smith & Hawken catalog and gave it to Martone as a going-away present when Martone left Boston, where he had been digging clams. 
this ash Y angle uh, shaped handle still retain a remnant of the ribbon that decorated the gift. Martone has operated a backhoe constructing draining ditches and he has used a ditch witch when digging a trench for a buried electrical conduit in a housing development around Las Vegas, Nevada. He has been certified to run a drag line as well as licensed to maintain boilers and obsolete steam shovels. He is a proficient at foundation work having been employed for four years in the area of poured form concrete and retaining walls and, uh, and building footings. Briefly, he worked as a sand hog, tunneling a new path tunnel between Manhattan and New Jersey. Martone has mined coal and gypsum in Kentucky and repaired the sewers of Paris and Vienna. Honorably discharged from the Seabees, he once helped fortify through entrenchment and construction of sand berms and tank traps the Saudi Arabian city of Qar during the Gulf War. He has buried culvert in Nova Scotia and created leach fields and septic tanks in Stewartstown, Pennsylvania. Having installed irrigation systems on the Trent Jones Design Golf Courses of Alabama, Martone recently took a position as gravedigger at the Roman Catholic Cemetery in his hometown in order to be closer to his family. <laughs> Using the newly purchased Kumatsu excavator, he dug the grave for his mother who died unexpectedly in her sleep. He observed the funeral from the cab of the machine, waiting until the mourners had departed to remove the astroturf blanket covering the spoil and then backfilling the opening and replacing the squares of real turf with dirt. Since that time, on his days off, Martone digs with the poacher's spade given to him by Nobel Prize winning Irish poet Seamus Haney his own grave or at least attempts to dig his own grave, as all of these efforts so far have been filled back in, as the resulting holes in his professional eye were never, never quite right. Um, we, I've had a great time this, uh, this week. One more to go. Uh, and, we, and I know in a lot of the classes we've done prompts, and so I thought I'd do a prompt a prompt sort of uh, exercise. This is from McSweeney's. It's also a rejected piece. Sweeney's rejected this. Uh, so, you know, solidarity, right? <laughs> um, and uh, what it is, kids, do this at home. Uh, you get 20 minutes. Pencil down, pencil up. That's all you get. 20 minutes to write something. Pencil down, pencil up. That's what this is. Um, and uh, again, I'd like to thank Amy and the, and the University of Iowa and and Iowa City and everybody for, for having me here. It's been great. Um, so this is called Black Box, 20 minutes. For a while there, I was interested in black box narratives. You could send away to the FAA for a transcript or sometimes a tape of the actual final words and sounds of the pilots in the doomed aircraft. The obscene words, the expletives as they say, were blacked out on the pages or bleeped on the audio. The swearing was epic as the crew headed into a mountain or realized that their planes were dis uh, disintegrating around them. Often there would be this other voice, this other character in the drama. It was the airplane itself producing the warning bells and sirens. At other times, those abstract sounds would be digitalized into a voice, that synthetic voice, alert, it would say, alert. And right there on the transcript would be this other voice amidst the final words of the captain and the first officer. My favorite was the United crash in Sioux City, where one of the fan jets on the DC-10 blew up and the flying turbine blades took out the hydraulics of the control surfaces. They were flying the airplane with the thrusts of the remaining two engines alone. The pilots were unable to take their hands from the yoke even though they controlled nothing anymore. The flight engineer, who died I think, ran things with the throttles alone. Thank you, Sioux City. See you on the ground, were the captain's last words as they came in for the crash landing, which is so cool as that would be what any pilot would usually say upon getting final routine instructions to land normally. Flight crews sometimes don't realize they're about to crash. One pilot was taking, uh, talking to his first officer about problems he was having with his wife. He thought she might be cheating on him, running around. It was a real soap opera. They were so distracted they didn't even notice when the plane started talking to them. Pull up, 
it said. Pull up. He kept on talking. Does she still love me, do you think? And then you heard the co-pilot say, what's this? Many times, the tapes simply end with mother, honest to God, or it's motherfucker, or you think it is, since the final mother has a streak out trailing it like smoke. Once, once I put a black box on me. I thought I would just record my day. I wanted to forget about it the way flight crews forget it is there. You might be recording your last words, but you forget after a while to think of this word as your last word, or this one as your last. You go about your business. I had a recorder so light, I did forget it was rolling in my pocket. My tape that day ends with me listening to the tapes of black boxes. On my tape, you can hear me call to my wife over the cabin traffic recorded on a doomed flight. Come here, I say. You have to hear this. You can hear her come in and hear the silence of us listening to the tape of the pilots who are trying to figure out why they are not gaining altitude. It turns out they forgot to set their leading edges and flaps. But they don't know it. I say that to my wife. They forgot to set their leading edges and flaps, but they don't know it. Then on my tape, you can hear the taped voice of the airplane saying, pull up, pull up. And the double silence of my tape and the tape of the black box. And then you hear my wife say, in a voice very much like her everyday voice, not an emergency voice, not a voice of surprise or anger or fear. She says, come to bed. And then that's the... Thank you very much. <laughs>